You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. What I realized as I was writing the book is that actually Herbert Hoover is a millennial spirit. 80 years before the millennials. This, I think, channels the ethos of the millennial generation. Political commentator Margaret Hoover. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Today's Republican Party has a problem, attracting young voters. But it's not a new problem. More than a decade ago, conservative commentator Margaret Hoover, the great-granddaughter of our 31st president, Herbert Hoover, recognized the problem. I met her in 2011 when she wrote a book whose title, American Individualism, was itself an homage to her great-grandfather. Now, as you listen in the next few minutes, you may hear some familiar themes that have permeated American politics to this day, including the Republican identity crisis. Is it still a party of old, straight, white men? So here now, from 2011, Margaret Hoover. I wrote the book because the, the obvious uh, age deficit in the Republican Party. In 2008, Barack Obama won the election. Essentially, the majority of the reason he won the election was because the 30 and under demographic turned out for him. I mean, we all know he won 66% of the vote. But John McCain won 32 percent of the vote. And that is the biggest delta uh, in terms of young people turning out and voting for. Uh, for and, and, it, and it's deeply troubling to me because I think he uh, espoused. I think he was able to channel the ethos of the generation without offering specifics. And I'm a conservative. I believe that conservative solutions and, and the solutions that have emanated from the conservative movement, in the Republican Party, are the ones that actually offer and affect the lives of 30 and unders more directly. And so I, I think there's a miss here. And I wanted to write about why, uh, who the millennials are. The millennials are what we call the 30 and unders. They're because they were the first generation to come of age in the new millennium. They were born at the beginning of the Reagan era to the end of the Clinton presidency. They're actually the largest generation in American history. There are 17 million more millennials than there are baby boomers. There are 27 million more millennials than there are Gen X. And so, and they were, they were 18% of the electorate in 2008. Half of over half of them voted, and they're they're growing. I mean, more of them are becoming eligible to vote, and it, it, some numbers suggest that they could be as much as twenty four percent of the electorate in twenty twelve, which is nearly a quarter of the electorate. So, and the, and the other concerning issue, there are two other things. You know, Partisan identity tends to solidify after three presidential election mm-hmm. cycles. And so they've already crossed all the barriers to voting in 2004. They voted for John Kerry by about 9%. So by, you know, they broke for him, but not as hard as in 2008 when they, you know, 30, uh, tw- yeah, 33% mm-hmm. for Barack Obama. And then it, so 2012 is really, you know, the next 16 months gives Republicans their opportunity to make inroads with this generation before there's something other than voting Republican for the rest of their lives. Well, clearly there's been disillusionment with President Obama. But can you separate his personality, that cult of personality, the, the hope and change from the economy that's going into the tank. You know what? And, and that's the you know million-dollar question, so to speak. I think that this is – we have an opportunity in the Republican Party to, to make real inroads because the economy is so bad, because the hope and change aura hasn't come to fruition. This generation is 37 percent unemployed and underemployed. That's the most in three decades for youth. And so we have an opportunity. I think in the book I sort of lay out a roadmap for how to talk about each of the issues that I think are going to be relevant to – 
the 2012 election, but also that are relevant to youth that constantly pop up on the all the surveys that they say are most important to them. So the environment, for example, they always talk about education. They also care a lot about health care. They care a lot about but the issues that are going to be most important in this election, jobs, jobs, jobs. And I think the the Republican Party has a real opportunity and the, and the conservative coalition to focus on fiscal issues, to focus on the, the path, the path forward, the path back to the White House is to focus on fiscal issues, spending, taxes, jobs, the economy, because this is going to unite the conservative coalition and also hopefully build a bridge to the next generation. I think the way we need to talk about spending, it's generational theft. Continuing to spend every dollar the Obama administration has spent in the last two years is a dollar that if you're 30 and under all those kids who voted for Barack Obama, they're going to have to pay it back. And he has taken a pass. He's taken a pass with his first budget, with his second budget, on actually standing up for the kids that voted for him and f- who brought him into office. And he is their fiscal future is in dire straits, and he's made it a lot worse. So I think Republicans, especially, you know, emulated, I think Paul Ryan's budget has given an enormous uh, sort of ca- counter alternative to, you know, he, there really is a choice of two futures here. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the title of my book I draw, it's called American Individualism, and I draw it from the themes of my great-grandfather, Herbert Hoover. He wrote a book called American Individualism in 1922. Returning from Europe, he saw Europe experimenting with socialism, Bolshevism, communism, fascism, and he wanted to try to characterize what it was about the American system that made the American system unique. And he called the American system's genius, American individualism, for its emphasis on equality of opportunity. And he said in 1928 in a campaign speech called Rugged Individualism, which, by the way, a lot of people don't realize rugged individualism is is part of the American ethos. And that Mm -hmm. is Herbert Hoover. And he in 1928, he said, we have a choice of two futures. He said, we have a choice of going along the path of the American system of individual, uh, the the American system, American individualism, where you have uh, an emphasis on the individual, an emphasis on freedom, on liberty, and on equality of opportunity, or to go the path of Europe, which is a, a path of paternalism and state socialism, a path where over bureaucratization and over-regulization of industry by government has sapped individual initiative and economic opportunity. And it, it's amazing to me that he said that in 1928, because I think that is the choice we have in 2012. He's eight decades ahead of his time. Yeah, and, and, so, and, and what I realized as I was writing the book is that actually Herbert Hoover is a millennial spirit. 80 years before the millennials. He, I mean, he was a technologist. He, you know, he pioneered many technologies at the cutting edge of his time. He was in a mining engineering, which is a cutting edge mm-hmm. field at the time. And he learned it right in the heart of the Silicon Valley. So, so, <laughs> so because at Stanford University. And then he was a globalist. I mean, he lived abroad for 20 years, but not as a tourist like Teddy Roosevelt was hunting game in Africa. He, he was a businessman. He was an international businessman far before his time. And he was also a humanitarian. He devoted his life to service of other mm-hmm. people and, and saved his biographers, say, close to a billion people from famine. Uh, so so these are this, I think, channels the ethos of the millennial generation that cares a lot about being part of larger than something, part of something that's mm-hmm. larger than themselves, dedicated to service, uh, and they want government to work. And, and Herbert Hoover believed that government could work. It wasn't always the problem. It could be part of the solution. Well, a few minutes ago when you were listing all the things that millennials put priority on, the one thing I didn't hear you mention anywhere in that list was party label. I didn't hear anything that, boy, I really want to be a Democrat. Oh, I can't wait to be a Republican. Is it is it possible for the Republicans to engineer a stealth victory, as it were, by saying, by not even mentioning the word Republican and just appeal 
as you know, Paul Ryan, people like that have to, to just common sense values, Actually, and people will come to the Republican Party. Well, and, and Paul Ryan, I'm so glad you mentioned it. He is the icon of this. He is so good at not demonizing, you know, Barack Obama, but talking about how terrible his policies have been. Mm-hmm. And and that's exactly the tone you have to take with millennials. You're exactly right. They are pragmatic, not partisan. The largest number of them are independents, then Democrats, then Republicans. If you ask them how they characterize themselves in terms of ideology, 40% are moderate. And then it breaks down 29, 28, conservative, liberal, conservative. So they, they're, they want government to work. They just want solutions. And I think it was Barack Obama's rhetoric along those lines that is what draw, drew them to Barack Obama as well as Republican brand damage. I think they were, they were turned away from the Republican Party and they were torn toward, brought to uh, a, a vision of government that really channeled their ethos. And here's one thing about youth. They reject the failures they know and they have limited experience. And so I think Reagan brought a generation of Republicans into the Republican Revolution, uh, partly based on the failures of the Carter administration, and, and then partly based on the fact that he was able to articulate a vision that inspired them and, and channeled channeled their energies and their optimism towards a, a government that was a, provided a better future. So you can convince people that they can like Barack Obama, but it's still okay to vote for Paul Ryan. That's the only way you're going to do it if you're trying to vote for these 30, get these 30 and unders to vote, because they 55% of them still like him personally. His job approval rate I is like 55%. Him personally. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't dislike him. I, you know, I, I don't know him, <laughs> you know, but from what I know about him, I, I, I think he's fine. <laughs> but, but, uh, but he he, I don't just, dis- I just, I don't dislike him as a person at all. I, I do dislike his policies, but the millennials have had a 18% drop in his job approval rating since January of 2009. Mm-hmm. So there are signs of disillusionment with him, and we do have a, a small window of opportunity to capitalize on it. I got new. Well, it won't be news to you, but it, it's a lot of baby boomers are also unhappy with the demonization on both sides, the personal attacks, the, I don't want to just defeat you in the, in the vote. I want to bring you down personally and crush you and all your ancestors. <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't deal with that anymore. I want something more pragmatic. So it's not just the millennials you're talking to. No, it's not. And frankly, if we use this formula for the millennials, we'll get a lot more than just the 30 and under vote. Well, you know, there, there's independence and, you know, every and every four years, Republicans talk about how do we get the independence? How do we, we did a great job in 2010. Well, let's replicate that. What did we do in 2010? We worried about fiscal issues and fiscal issues really united the conservative coalition. Yeah, actually, along those veins, talk for a moment about Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell and his campaign. He, I mean, Bob McDonald's a social conservative, as we all know, but he was able to unite the factions of the conservative coalition in his state as he ran and he kept it on fiscal issues and he won overwhelmingly and he got youth mm-hmm. he got the youth vote so he's a wonderful model after this short break the unusual path into politics that this great granddaughter of a president took now back to my 2011 interview with margaret hoover have you always been political yourself? No, I haven't. It's unbelievable. So I was I was raised in this family as a descendant of Herbert Hoover, and so I grew up hearing great stories about mm-hmm. my you know my dad uh, lived in the Waldorf Astoria with his grandfather uh, Herbert Hoover in 31A one winter and had a guy come in with five stars on his shoulders and told him how to use his toy soldiers to make a flank, and it turned out it was General MacArthur who lived upstairs. <laughs> you know, so you you grow up with these crazy stories uh, in, in these families. I mean, not mine aren't my Herbert Hoover stories are nothing like David Eisenhower when he tells his stories. I mean, he, he got a whole, you know, presidential retreat named after him. You know, Camp David is named after 
David Eisenhower, <laughs> uh, President Eisenhower's grandson. But uh, so no, I mean, you grew up with these stories, and I grew up, of course, as a student of Herbert Hoover and a student student of the American conservative movement. But I didn't get involved in really the functioning of our democracy uh, until after 9-11. I had studied in China, and I had studied Mandarin Chinese as well as uh, I majored in Spanish language literature and spent a lot of time in Latin America, Bolivia, and Mexico. And then I was I was working for a Taiwanese law firm in Taipei, Taiwan, and my first day there was 9-11. Wow. And from the other side of the world, I realized, you know, I had never interned in politics. I didn't major in political science. I didn't hadn't done any of the stuff that, that you know, a lot of people who are interested in, in mm-hmm. the functioning of, of government do. And uh, on 9-11 and, and the weeks that followed, you know, we, of course, we all stayed glued to our TVs, and it was 12 hours later there. So I would go to work in the day and then come home and stay glued to my TV all night. And... I decided then and there that I, you know, I was also so inspired by how patriotic the country was, but how patriotic youth were. And I, I wanted to be part of our system. I wanted to I wanted to, to learn about the functioning of our democracy. So and I the, And in the days right after nine eleven, there weren't Republican rallies for America no, and Democratic rallies it was for America. The most patriotic and inspiring time uh, of our country. I'd never been prouder to be American and, and uh, I mean I'm a very proud American, mm-hmm. but those moments for all Americans, especially mm-hmm. I mean, the flags that were painted on houses on the sides of the road, the the outpouring of strength, it was just uh, the most incredible uh, demonstration of what the American spirit and the American will and the American ethos is all about. But in the end, how do you get past the notion that Republicans are still just old white guys? Look, uh, well, so glad you asked, actually. (laughs) Being an old white guy myself. (laughs) Because because increasingly we're not. And uh, look, in 2010, we elected three women governors. We have two Indian American governors. We have two border state Hispanic governors. We have our presidential field is far more diverse. I mean, well, the, you know, the Democrats aren't don't have an open open uh, race, but we have you know an African American, a woman, maybe another woman who gets in. Who knows? Uh, increasingly, we, we aren't the party of old white guys, and uh, we just need to showcase our diversity more so that we don't get locked into that. Because of course, I think as conservatives and Republicans, we are. Um, uh, more likely to be uh, stereotyped uh, mm-hmm. by, I, I think, the you know mainstream media outlets. But the problem, I guess, is that a lot of the old white guys who have been the core of the Republican Party for generations are going to look at some of the things you're talking about in this book and they say, you know, Margaret, I'm I'm not sure we want to do that whole gay rights thing. Uh, we we shouldn't, you know. The, they're just uncomfortable with it. There's some yeah. generational issues here. And you're, I'm glad you mentioned gay rights because this is something that for the 30 and under generation, that they are the only generation in America where an absolute majority – not only do they not have hang-ups about sexual orientation, they, they have a majority where they believe that gays should be able to get married. And, and this, this may be a generational issue. I'm, I'm, I'm totally willing to concede that. But if we want to really grow the party – uh, I, I don't think we want to make ourselves the party that's against gay people. <laughs> or, and, and, uh, and I don't think we are. I think we're the party of individual freedom. That's what the conservative movement is about. It's about individual freedom, individual liberty. And look, we started, the Republican Party began as the abolitionist party. Mm-hmm. We, this is in our DNA. And it also gave steam to the suffrage movement, to, to, to women's rights in this country. And that it was based on individualism. Look, we take people for who they are, not as groups of people, not as minorities. The left does special interests. The left does uh, you know, minority politics. We don't do that. We, we see people as they are, but we, but we don't have discrimination based on the color of their skin or the gender or 
or their sexual orientation. But why then do the Democrats get all the brownie points for being the party of heart and, and openness? I mean, and... what's incredible is, yeah, Dick Cheney is to the left of Barack Obama on gay rights. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the part that's amazing. And so I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary here. Um, and, I, and I think I am telling the truth about from the 30 and under demographic, that this is just a non-issue. And, uh, but, but I think also the key is, you know, 80% my ally isn't 20% my enemy. And that's Reagan, right? Uh, and, and the conservative coalition can be very fractured at times. And I think the key to winning, as we've learned, is to focus on what unites us, not what divides us. And so that's my hope for the Republican Party and for connecting conservatism to a new generation. Margaret Hoover is 45 now. She hosts Firing Line on PBS. And you can get Margaret Hoover's book by following the link in our show notes or at our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and while you're at HeardEverything.com, don't miss my 2013 interview with radio talk show host Dan Bongino. We think elected officials have the power because we elect them, but what you don't realize when you're behind the scenes is they don't. Who really has the power, Bill, is a series of cronies, bureaucrats, paid-off insiders. And my 1998 talk with then-House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Being in opposition, you get up and say no. Being the majority, you get up every morning and say, now how am I going to move this? How do I get 218 people to agree? And it was literally dramatically harder than I thought it would be. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If you haven't subscribed already, would you click the link in the show notes and subscribe today? I'd sure appreciate it. And would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who helped make the phrase dead man walking part of our national vocabulary about the death penalty. My 1993 interview with the author of Dead Man Walking, Sister Helen Prejean. I'm opposed to people killing each other, period. No one has a right to kill another human being and to use violence. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 